morning, church. What a beautiful morning. Inside, inside God has given us, not so much outside, but inside. Welcome to Next Community Church. Uh, my name's Joe, one of the pastors here, and extend a warm welcome to you, especially if you're a guest or a visitor with us. We're, we're honored that you're here. We're blessed that you're here, and we pray that you'd feel welcome here. I want to say good morning to those of you at home as well. We pray that you're blessed as well this morning as we continue on in our series called The Story. We will wrap up our survey of the whole Bible today as we cover the 95 years of the New Testament. But before we do that, um, as we've done each of the last three weeks now, I want to introduce to you Josh Kemmer and invite Josh to come on up. And he's going to share... There you are. Hey, bud. That was, uh, he's going to share his story of how the Bible has impacted and changed his life. Come on over here, man. Good morning. Okay, so my story with my Bible travels back a couple generations with both of my grandfathers because I genuinely believe that their faithfulness in studying God's word shaped and molded the generations that came after. When Joe asked me to share about my time in the word, I knew I couldn't share my story without sharing theirs. Psalm 78, 4 through 7 says, We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generations about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. He commands our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them. Even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Both my grandfathers were first-generation Christians who both went through very miraculous conversions and lived their lives to tell the stories of the work God has done in their hearts and lives. One thing about my opa Gert that my mom recently shared with me was that the Bible was his final authority. She said his go-to phrase after reading scripture was, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. He is now in his 80s and is teaching Bible studies at the retirement home he is living in. On the other side of my family, my grandpa Harvey was one of meekness, gentleness, and perseverance. I've never met someone who has exemplified a more selfless life. He laid his life down for his wife, children, and grandchildren. One of my most fondest memories of his selflessness was how he would show up to our house every day to help my mom homeschool myself and my eight siblings. My grandpa passed away last year, and it was the first time I got to see his Bibles and journals and hundreds of sermon notes. This was a man who not only loved God's word, but lived it out faithfully to the day he died. These two great men passed down their love for God's word to my parents. Now, I could share endless stories about my parents and how I learned at a very early age that the Bible was their most prized possession. They loved the Lord, and you could tell by the amount of time they spent in the Word. It was the examples they set right before me daily that has now given me passion in my adulthood to run to the Word for everything. It wasn't always like that. Growing up in a Christian home, it was easy to live off my parents' faith, but it wasn't until a couple of years into my marriage that I fell in love with God's Word for myself. In 2010, I married the love of my life at the age of 19, and we had our first daughter at 21. The stresses of life quickly piled on. The unshakable faith of my parents was not unshakable for me. I would use the Bible as something to try and medicate the trials of life by selective Bible reading, motivated by what I needed to receive for that moment. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing of the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I was taking a two-edged sword and using it to butter my toast. 
I wasn't using it as if I was as if it was living and active. I used it when I thought I needed it, not realizing that I needed it in every single moment. At some point after accumulating many sinful patterns and bad practices, Hebrews 4:12 became real to me. For me to be transformed by his word and changed by his power, I needed to stop reading God's word with what I could get out of it and start reading it for what it is and allow that to shape and mold my life. My grandparents got it, my parents got it, and now I get it, and I pray every day that my kids get it. God's word isn't just an important thing, it is everything. He speaks to us through his word and dwells with us through his spirit. Every time I open God's word, he shows up. God's word is living and active, and now I realize that and have learned to simply spend time with him and allow him to speak to me. And back to what Psalm 78.4 says, I will not hide these truths from my children. I will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord about his power and his mighty wonders, just as my grandparents and my parents did for me. What an awesome legacy to receive and then to pass on to now your three kids that God has blessed you with. The most important thing you could ever pass on to the next generation not your inheritance, it's not your possessions, it's not your 401, it's going to be a love for the Word of God, which is going to live forever and will shape their life and hopefully for generations to come, which is why we're doing this series, so that people can know God, know His Word, understand it, remove the barriers from approaching it, and have a framework so that when you open up the Word of God, you, you understand the setting and the context and how it, it really is just one book that all fits together. And that's what we've been doing the last, the last three weeks is we've been uh, going through the Old Testament and helping you to understand it. Um, I know you can't see that. There we go. All right. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a really quick fly-through, Okay. A review, because we're going to start the New Testament today, and uh, we've covered um, thousands of years so far in the Old Testament. Today, we're going to cover 95 years, from the time of Jesus' birth till the last book of the Bible, Revelation, was written, which is about 95 AD. And so I, I want to frame it up to make sure that we remember where we've been. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of fly through how the whole Old Testament story goes as a way of review. So we, we recognize that these aren't two separate books, the Old Testament, the New Testament, one book, 66 um, books in this one book, that we would make sure that we understand the common thread, the story of God that goes through this. So it starts with God creating everything in the book of Genesis. Man in chapter 3 brought sin into the world, that's Adam and Eve, and changed everything. God put a redemption plan in place. Four, five, six of Genesis spirals more sin in the world till you get to Noah here in Genesis chapter six. And the story of, of, of Noah is God saving the world through a family. Um, so you get to Genesis chapter 11. You remember what that is, right? <laughs> That's the Tower of Babel. Come on. That's the... <laughs> That's the Tower of Babel. 
That's the Tower of Babel, which is where man's pride said, let's get great, let's build a tower to heaven. God said, no, confused their languages and gave the world languages and the people scattered. God then in Genesis chapters 12 through 50 said, we're going to start over again. I'm going to start working through a, a a person, I'm going to build a family that's going to turn into a nation. It's going to be my people. And so came to Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you into a nation and I'm going to bless you. And then Abraham got impatient in his old age, took matters into his old hand, in his own hands. Ishmael was born, which eventually gave rise to the Arab nation. Um, God then gave him Isaac. Isaac then had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and had one of those was Joseph, his 11th son. Jacob wrestled with God, and God changed his name to Israel, which is how Israel got its name. And so God began to bless Joseph, um, even though his brother sold him into slavery down in Egypt, God's hand was on Joseph. And so even if your situation is bad, as you stay close to the Lord, his hand will continue to be with you. That's what we see in Joseph. God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And so Joseph has favor. Um, ends up being a famine in the land. And the nation of Israel has to come down to Egypt to get food. They get enslaved. They're enslaved 430 years until God raises up Moses. Raises up Moses to exit them from Egypt. That's the book of Exodus, leads them out. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy all tells the story of God leading his nation out into the, the promised land. They disobey. Uh, they don't go in. God says, take a lap. They wander around for 40 years until that generation dies off. And then the next generation is the one that's going to go in. Joshua leads them into the promised land around 1406 BC approximately, and that leads us to the time of judges. They're in the promised land, they spiral out of control over 300 years, the period of judges is about 300 years of just bad behavior. And God raises up a judge and we see that cycle that goes on and they say, we want a king, right? Israel wants a king like all the other nations and so they say, all right, you're going to get a king. God says, I want to be your king. They say, no, we want a human king. And so God gives them Saul. He reigns for 40 years, turns out to be bad. God then gives him David, a man after God's own heart. And then David has a son, Solomon. That story is told in First and Second Samuel. David wrote many of the Psalms. God made a, a promise to David. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, your inheritance, and your, your descendants will sit on the throne forever. And so this is ultimately fulfilled, we said, way down here with Jesus. In 931, after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into two. And we said there's ten tribes that become known as Israel. They go to the north, and they have a capital of Samaria. There's two tribes of the twelve that stay to the south. They become known as Judah, and their capital is Jerusalem. And they end up each having their own sets of kings. The northern tribe has 20 kings. They're all bad. They lead Israel away. This story is told in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. God eventually raises up the nation of Assyria that comes in in 722 and destroys the northern kingdom. 
The southern kingdom had 20 kings. They had eight good and 12 bad, so they lasted a little longer. They lasted to 586 BC. But during this time, in here, you have prophets that speak to both the northern and southern kingdom. And we have those books in our Bibles. They're divided up into two categories, major and minor. Again, not by importance, but by size. And so um, they speak to the nation of Israel and, and basically call them back to be the covenant people of God. So the southern kingdom, because they had some good kings, they last longer. They last to 586 until God raises up the nation of Babylon. They come in, destroy the temple, carry them off into exile. They're in exile for 70 years. That's the book of Daniel takes place. And then they're allowed, once the Persian Empire comes in, Persia comes in, takes over the Babylonian Empire, and allows the Jews to go home, to return. And so there's three returns back to the promised land. This is by a guy named Zerubbabel, and this is by a guy named Ezra, and this is by a guy named Nehemiah. Leads them back to the promised land. Nehemiah takes place in 444 BC, puts the walls back up. Three more prophets come in after the exile. These are called the post-exilic prophets. They come and they speak to Israel because they start sliding again, backsliding again. And so God raises up these three prophets to come back to Israel and say, come on now, stop, stop, stop. And then we come to the period of 400 silent years where there's no prophetic voice. There's nobody. God is done speaking to Israel as he's getting ready and preparing them to send their Messiah that they've been waiting for all this time that God is going to send the Messiah into the world. During this 400 silent years, if you know world history, after the Persian Empire, what empire comes next? Before the Romans, the Greeks. And this is important. We'll get to this when we start talking about next week, the inspiration of the Bible, how we got the Bible, the books of the Bible, and why don't we have the Apocrypha in our Bible. Um, during this time, the world, and Alexander the Great's um, goal was to Hellenize the world, right? The Greek culture he thought was the best, and he wanted the whole world to become the Greek culture. And so everybody starts speaking Greek, and now you got all these Jews. They can't read their own Bible, right? They have kids. Their kids have kids. Their kids have kids. They don't speak Hebrew. They don't know how to read the Bible anymore. And so they determine that the best thing to do is to translate the Bible into a Greek translation that becomes known as the Septuagint. It's abbreviated sometimes in your Bibles um, by sept means anybody? Seven, you're right, seven. The story is in 250 BC, 250 BC, 70 uh, Hebrew scholars get sent away to Alexandria, Egypt to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. 70 of them, that's why it's called the Septuagint. It's often abbreviated in your Bibles like this, Roman numerals, 50, 10, 10. That is, it becomes an important thing. Because not only do they translate the Old Testament, they also start translating, during this time of 400 years, people start writing other stuff. The Apocrypha books are written during this time. Okay? When they translate the Septuagint, not only do they translate this, but they start translating some of these. And just put a, put, a, put a pin in that, because we'll come back to that later when we start talking about why don't we have the Apocrypha books in. Just need to know, this is what happens. 
400 silent years happen, and then all of a sudden this guy shows up. He's crazy. He's wild. He eats oats, honey. His, his clothes is made out of camel's hair. And he says, get ready. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. His name is John the Baptist. And he becomes kind of the, the hinge of going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's the prophet that says, get ready because Jesus is coming, right? And so that is the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. John the prophet comes and shows up. John the Baptist comes, shows up and says, get ready. Jesus is coming. And Jesus shows up. And you got to stop and you got to think about this. God took on flesh and walked the earth for 33 years. God walked the earth for 33 years. And the main connector between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or one of the main connectors between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is all during this time in these prophetic books. And in these prophetic books, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Isaiah was written about 700 BC. They would write what's called dual prophecy. They would write prophetic words that had to do with their immediate audience and a future audience, that a a future deliverer was going to come. And so there are, in the Old Testament, over 300 prophecies about this Messiah that is going to come and deliver Israel. And Jesus Christ fulfills Every single one of the Old Testament, over 300 of them. The odds are staggering when you, what are the chances of one person, hundreds of years later, fulfilling 300 predictions? It's, it's incalculable. It's, it's unbelievable. Things like where he would be born. Things that Jesus had no control over, right? Where he would be born. That he would be born of a virgin, I mean, that's just, that's crazy. How's that, how do you make that prediction and not get laughed at, right? Oh, yeah, no, the Savior's going to be born, but he's going to be born from a woman that's never been with a man. Okay, okay, Isaiah. Okay, right? And like, right? Um, uh, that he would have none of his bones broken as he hung on the tree, right? That he'd be crucified between two feet, like all these things um, that... And which is why it's really, really important. When, when Jesus was crucified, they didn't break his bones. It was common to break his bones that when he was nailed to the cross, you would, you would push up on the nail in your feet to take a breath, and then you'd have to slump back down like this. You remember the story? And the guard came to inspect them, and they broke the legs of the other two guys to speed up death. That's what they do. They came to Jesus, and they thought he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Instead, they did what? Spear in his side, Right? Like, why was that? You think this Roman guard knew the Old Testament prophecy that none of his bones would be broken? No. It's God in control of all of this, completely in control of everything. And Jesus comes and completely fulfills all 300 of them. And so we have, we have, I would write something like this. We have four stories that explain the story of Jesus. They're called the Gospels. And the word gospel 
literally means good news. That's what the word gospel means. It literally means good news. That it's good news that God has come down because we have not figured out how to be good enough to go up. So God came down and provided salvation for the world, including you and me. That's, that's good news. That's, that's the gospel. And, and we have four of them, right? We have Matthew, and we have Mark, and we have Luke, and we have John. And people have asked, why four? Why do we need four stories telling the same story? To which I would say, they're not the same story. They're not the same. Here's what you need to understand about the Gospels. Is that each author is writing for a specific purpose to a specific audience. right? And each one is unique and tells parts of Jesus' life to, to accomplish their purpose to their audience. It'd be like this. This is the illustration I was told back in seminary. It's a great illustration. It would be like if there's four of us that are walking through the woods coming up to a cabin we find in the middle of the woods. And I come up from the south, and you come up from the east, and somebody else comes up from the north, and somebody else comes up from the west. And there's four windows on this cabin. And I come up from the south, and I put my face up against the window, and I'm looking into the cabin of this, and I start describing the cabin as to what I see. Well, the, the, the kitchen area is over here on the left. I notice a set of golf clubs over here in the corner. This person must be a golfer, right? right? And so I'm writing with a specific purpose from what I'm observing. Now, let's say my wife happens to be the second person that she's coming in from the east, and she puts her head up against the window this way. Well, the first thing she notices, oh, look at that kitchen. I didn't even, I didn't even stop. I didn't even mention the kitchen. Now, it wasn't important to me, right? But she's noticing the kitchen and the detail in the kitchen. So that's what she's writing down because she has her audience that she's writing to for her purpose, and they care about kitchens, and that's what they need to know. So she's writing down. She doesn't even notice the golf clubs here in the corner, but that was the first thing that I noticed, right? And so you have four different authors that are writing to four different sets of audiences at that time with four different purposes. Matthew was a Jew writing to the Jews about the king of the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. You want to take a guess which gospel quotes the Jews' book, the Old Testament, the most? Which one? Matthew. He quotes the Old There's more Old Testament quotes in Matthew than any other gospel. Why? Because Matthew was a Jew writing to his own people, trying to show them Jesus is the, he's the guy. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for all the Old Testament. So he quotes the Old Testament the most. Mark, Mark is writing to a, a Roman audience. And, and he portrays Jesus as a suffering servant. Mark's gospel is the shortest, and it's filled with action. Filled with action. You, you'll notice this, if you read the gospel of Mark, the word immediately shows up a lot. Immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. Why? This is, this is Mark's purpose in telling the story, is he's writing to a Roman audience. Let me go back. Let me, let me, let me go back to Matthew real quick. I want you to see this. Even how the gospels begin. 
right? Can you throw up that first uh, verse in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1? This is how Matthew's chapter, be- if you read Matthew chapter 1, it's boring reading. Unless you're a Jew wanting to understand, is this Jesus really the fulfillment of the prophet, of the, of the promise? And then you're like, oh, super interested. Because the whole chapter is a genealogy. So-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so had so-and-so. It starts off with this. I mean, if you and I were writing a book, the editor would be like, hey, bro, you, you need to change this opening. No one's going to read past chapter one, right? A, a, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What's he doing? He's showing his people that Jesus is from the line of Abraham, the line of David. And that's how he starts off, and it's a genealogy. You and I, we probably skip Matthew chapter 1. Probably most times we read Matthew. To the Jew, oh man, this is gripping reading. Are you kidding me? It goes all over. All right. Mark, how does Mark, his, his is a gospel of action, right? How does he begin his? Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He just goes into it. There's a, 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 a quote from Isaiah And then, bam, verse 9, John the Baptist came and baptized Jesus. Like, Jesus' baptism is verse 9. He doesn't waste any time setting it up, doesn't even talk about Jesus' birth. He just, right into Jesus' baptism, and off he goes. Shortest of the Gospels, most miracles recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Action, right? Then you come to Luke. Luke's Gospel, Luke is perhaps the only non-Jewish author of the Bible. Luke was a Gentile. He was a doctor. His is very precise. His is the longest gospel, and his is arranged the most chronologically. Matthew is not trying to tell a perfect biology of, of, uh, 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 not biology, autobiography of Jesus. And so sometimes people are like, oh, well, he says this, but the other gospel says this. That's because Matthew is grabbing bits and pieces, and maybe he takes something from the middle of Jesus' life, but he's trying to help his Jew. And so he groups it, and he puts it over here with something from the beginning. Because he's not trying to, it's not trying to give a detailed autobiography of step one to step 30 of Jesus' life. That wasn't his purpose. Luke, that is his purpose. Luke is the most organized, the most detailed, the most precise. It's the longest of the four Gospels. Look how Luke begins. Luke chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses. Now Luke was not one of the twelve, and so he was not an eyewitness to Jesus. So he is a private eye investigator. This is what he's going to say that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. That's who he's writing to, a guy named Theophilus. So that you may know the certainty of the things that which you have been instructed. An orderly sequence, right? So that's, that's Luke's purpose. And, 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 and Luke portrays Jesus as his humanity. You see the humanity side of Jesus a lot. Why? Luke was a Gentile. He's writing to other Gentiles. The Greeks particularly um, were always trying to find the perfect man. What does it mean to be the perfect man? Luke 
presents Jesus to a Gentile audience as the perfect man. The Gospel of Luke reveals that. And then you have John, right? John is the fourth Gospel writer. And, and John's Gospel is unique. You, you, see, you see similarities between these three, so much so that theologians have named them together for a thousand Bible trivia points. Anybody know what these three group together are called? Mott's actually you're thinking the, the hamster's churning, he's running. You got it? The synoptic gospels. Sin optic. Sin means what? Synth- when you synthesize something, it means what? Same. Same optic. See. Seeing the same. These three are very similar. There's overlap. Lots of the stories are the same. The miracle is the same, right? The, uh, similar. John is very unique, is very different, right? It is portraying Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God, and it has the teachings of Jesus where he shows himself to be the Son of God. The seven I am statements are found in Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door. I am living water. All, they're scattered throughout John's teachings, right? And so that is John. And John, at the end of his gospel, puts the purpose of his. Everybody else put it in the beginning. John puts his in the very next to last chapter. John 20 says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, here it is, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why I've written these things down, right? And so um, Jesus and the cross of Jesus, right? changes everything. And the Gospels record that. And so I want to remind you of, of that you and I are now living in New Testament times. right? We are living in an era post-cross. If you can throw up that next graphic, just remind you, this is in your notes. The whole Old Testament looked forward to Jesus, looked forward to the Messiah, looked forward. That was the Old Testament. And now, and this is important, Now, because the rest of the books that we're going to do, everything that we're going to do over here, that we're going to cover over here, is in light of the cross. Because Jesus came, and because he's the same, this is now how you live. And this is very important, because there are some religions and some teachings, even under the banner of Christian, that are out there that teach that you have to do all this stuff, all the rest of the Bible, or the commands to do to be a good person so God will love you. And God's like, no, no, no. I've already shown the world that I love you. And so now, because Christ died for you, and now he lives in you, you've received him into your life. You now live this way in light of that. Not to earn that, it's already done. You now live in light of that love. You receive that grace. You receive that love. And now it's a loving relationship, not one of a duty where you have to follow. And this is the rule book. But it's one of where Christ is now in my life. And I've received him. So now I live with him in me. And that's the rest of the New Testament. How to live looking back at the cross. And so let's talk about the rest of the New Testament. Okay? So, we have the Gospels. 
get rid of this. Okay, we have the Gospels, and next in our Bibles comes what? The book of Acts. Okay, Jesus goes up to heaven and sends down the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts is the acts of the disciples after Jesus leaves. It is how the church is started. It is written by this guy. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. And I want you to see the connection of Acts. Acts chapter 1 says, this is Luke. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. Here's his buddy again. What's the first narrative he wrote? Luke. He's like, I wrote the first one. The first Luke and Acts are meant to go together. If you were to go into the Borders bookstore and, and want to buy, they should be a, right next. It's a two-volume set. Luke and Acts. Same author, same purpose. Just telling a different story. Look what he says. About all that Jesus began to do. The first narrative is all that Jesus began to do. Now, he's going to write in the book of Acts, check this out, all that Jesus is going to continue to do. He's just doing it from a heavenly place, except he's now given us the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is still alive and working in the earth today. He's just done it through his body. This thing called the... And people are like, oh, I don't need church. I don't need... I just need Jesus. Like... You can't just have Jesus without his body, the church. It is unbiblical and wrong thinking and bad theology and frankly just prideful to say, I have Jesus, I don't need the church, I don't need no church. There's no perfect church, all the churches are bad. Well, there's no perfect gym and all the fat people go to gyms. It doesn't make you stop going to gyms because people are, right? It's like, it's like I'm not going to the gym, there's all these fat people there. It's like, that's... That's why you go. And if people ain't going to go to church because there's messed up people at church and liars and hypocrites and all that, I got, that's all of us. That's, that's all of us. And so, and so I, I will lovingly say this to those of you at home, that if, if it's like, I don't want to go to church, I just like sit on my couch and just kind of getting some stuff. It's like you're meant to be a part of this thing. It is the way God is working here on earth through this living body called the church. Not a building, this living body, the gathering of the people together, okay? And so that's the book of Acts. And so this is what, this is what um, I wrote the first narrative of Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And after he'd given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen, right? And then in seven verses later in verse eight, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Listen, don't miss this, because he's about to give the rest of the outline of the book of Acts and the New Testament. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes down. Jesus is like, I'm going up. The Holy Spirit's coming down. This is going to be better for you. There's one of me, but the Holy Spirit's going to live in everyone. It's going to dwell in everyone. And what happens when the Holy Spirit comes down? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Let me modernize that for you. Philly. Jerusalem was a city. You're going to be my witnesses in Philly. In Judea and Samaria, that was spreading out to the whole nation of Israel. So let me modernize that for you. You're going to be my witnesses in Philly. You're going to be my witnesses in the U.S. That's our nation, he's describing. And then to the ends of the earth. And you don't need to modernize that. It's the same thing. And so 
he just gave the outline of the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the book of Acts, is that the gospel is going to start here in Jerusalem, it's going to spread out to the rest of the nation, and then it's going to really spread out to the rest of the world. And the book of Acts tells that story. And it happens through one main guy. And his name started off as Saul, and he hated Jesus, and he hated people that believed in Jesus, and he actually went around killing people that followed Jesus and spoke about Jesus. And for him, it was blasphemy saying that this guy was the Messiah. There's no way. And if you're going to believe that, I'm, I'm, going to put, I'm going to be done with you. And his name was Saul. And in Acts chapter 9, God struck him blind on the road and woke him up, grabbed him, shook him <laughs> metaphorically, and said, knock it off, did a complete 180. And Saul changed his name to Paul, and he became the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. And he ends up going on three journeys. He ends up taking three journeys where he spreads the gospel a little bit, and then he spreads the gospel a little bit more, and then he spreads the gospel a little bit more. Let me try and show them to you real quick. We're running out of time, but let me show them to you because I think, I think they're really interesting. I want you to see the way the gospel goes out. Okay? You all see that? Okay? Starts off here in, in Antioch. Starts off here in Antioch. Antioch was the first church planting center. They sent out missionaries. By the way, it's what we're trying to figure out right now. Our missionary team has met twice over the last two months. We told you in the fall, if you remember, like, we're our church that's going to do what the Bible says to do, is to care about the gospel going out to the world. And so we've met twice, and we're praying about where, what's it going to look like for us to go. And so this church cared about going. They sent Paul out. He went over here. This is Galatia. We have a book in the Bible called Galatians. It's the first book that Paul wrote around 50 A.D. <clears throat> He flies, or flies, he sails over here, <laughs> not yet, he sails over here, does ministry on this island, sails here, goes up here to, my sleeve hit it and did that, that's really cool, I don't even know how it happened, <laughs> went up here, um, visited these cities, city, 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 and then went back and visited them again and came back to Antioch. Okay, that's where he went on, on his first missionary journey. Let me get rid of this and get rid of these scribbles. Let me show you the second one. Remember I told you he went a little further in his first one, and then, uh, or in his second one, he goes further. <clears throat> okay, this time he starts in Jerusalem. He goes up here to Antioch. Same thing, sending headquarters. He goes back to the way he went. And it's like, I'm going to visit these churches. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to visit the church I started, 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 visit these guys. Goes over here to Troas, wants to go up here. Wants to go... Wants to go up... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wants to go up here. And... And the Holy Spirit appears to him and says, don't go up there. 
Go over here. It's actually a vision that God gives him at night. It's, a, it's called the Macedonian vision. This is Greece. This whole thing is Greece. He goes over here to Philippi and, and starts the first church in Europe. Okay? In Philippi. We studied Philippians this past summer. Starts the first church in Europe. Goes to Philippi. Goes down to Thessalonica. Goes to Berea. Uh, you can read in Acts 17. We don't have time. But in Acts 17, it says the Bereans were more noble than others. Because they didn't just take the words. They actually then... Oh, go ahead and throw, switch over to me, would you, in the back, and just throw it up real quick. I want you to see this. It says, um, go to the next one, if you would. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they didn't just take it because Paul said so. They actually... Now, they didn't have these yet. This is, this is actually why I wanted you to see this. I wanted you to see this for two reasons. Number one, they're in the word daily. In the word daily. Number two, I want you to see, even though the Bible hasn't been printed yet and organized this way yet, they had the right, this would be talking about the Old Testament. When it says they examined the scriptures daily, this is talking about the Old Testament, the scrolls and the parchments that they would have had. So I want you to see this, because when we get to the Bible being changed and all that, I want you to see that early on they were writing things down, and they had them, and they preserved them very carefully, and they spent every day reading the Word of God, even back then, right? And so that was the church at Berea. He sails down here to Athens, to Corinth, goes over to Ephesus, doesn't stay there very long, says, I'll be back. And he does, he leaves, and then ends up back down here, okay? And then... Let me get you up to Acts 13, or excuse me, uh, Paul's third journey. Paul's third journey, same thing. Let me go through here. Let me see how these guys are doing. And then he comes across here and stops at Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. I mean, you can visit Ephesus today. You're not going to see churches. It's modern-day Turkey. You're going to see lots of mosques. But you're going to see, Paul spent three years there. It's the longest he ever spent in one place. He spent three years. You can read about his time there in Acts chapter 19. Stayed in Ephesus three years. Went back up here to visit these guys, see how these guys are doing. And then went back around, returned back, and let me, let me go back and visit with you. And then end up wanting to stay with um, them in Ephesus. He knew if he went back to Ephesus, he would never get out of there because he was there three years, lots of relationships. So he called the elders of the church to come down to this little beach here, Miletus. And in Acts chapter 20, you have this endearing scene where they kneel down on the beach and they pray and they're crying. And it says, because they love Paul and they knew they'd never see him again. And, and, and so the work that's involved in Building a church, starting a church. By the way, we believe that God's calling us to do that. That next community church is not just going to be us. That we're going to just follow the biblical model. Send people out to start churches and plant churches. Right? We're not trying to build a kingdom here. We're trying to share the gospel of Jesus. And so, so this is, he ends up coming down here, returns back to Jerusalem. Okay, so you can read all about that in Acts. While he's, while he's, um, this is, right, him going out, going out. 
While he's doing that, he writes letters back to those churches. He ends up writing 13 letters. He ends up writing 13 letters. We have them in our Bible today. Corinthians is the letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. Answering questions, dealing with issues. Galatians is Ephesians is Colossians. We have these letters of instructing the new church how to live in light of Jesus. Right. So we have these letters. We have thirteen of them. They're Paul's letters. After that, in your Bible, okay. You have something called the general epistles. The general epistles are ones that are not written by Paul. They are the books of Hebrews and James and 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude. Books not written by Paul that continue to tell us how to live. And then you have the last book of the Bible. And let me ask the worship team to come. The last book of the Bible which tells how things are going to go at the end of time that God gave to us to help us figure out how the end of the world is going to happen. He told us how the beginning of the world happened, and he's going to tell us how the end of the world is going to happen. And someday we'll dive back into Revelation and do a study of the book of Revelation. But let me read to you. It's written by John, by the way, the Apostle John. Let me read to you the last words of the Bible, the last six verses of the Bible. It says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. This is Jesus speaking. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, both the spirit and the bride, right? the Holy Spirit and the bride. Who's the bride of Christ? Both the Spirit, they hear this, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Yeah, Jesus, come. Right? Let anyone who hears say, come. Let anyone who's thirsty come. Let's talk about spiritual thirst. Every person has this, this hole in their heart, this spiritual hole in their heart that only Jesus can fill. So this is the invitation at the end, Come. While you can, the one who desires to take the water of life freely, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are written about in this book. In other words, don't mess with God's word. He who testifies about these things, this is Jesus, says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. You know what amen means? So be it. Let it be. Yes. Come, Lord Jesus. The last words of the Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Let it be. Amen. And so the story of God, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Our time is up. I want you to come back next week because next week 
if you thought this was class, class is really going to be in session next week because we're, we're going to talk about how do, how do you know? Could you prove to someone and say, because we keep calling this God's word, God's word, God's word. Did God really write this book? How did God write this book? How do we know it's God's word? Are you sure? Because you're betting your eternal life on it. And are you sure it hasn't been changed? And are you sure we got the right books? Are you sure we got all the books? What about if they find more books? Add them in? Put an addendum in? Next week, we're going to start tearing into all of that, being confident that this is truly the Word of God. So let's pray. So God, we thank you, we trust you, and we need you. And we need your Word. Thank you for it. And thank you for the story that you are still writing today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close.